the world would have been completely different if at the same time as the Warsaw Pact had been disbanded, NATO said, well, right now is the time for a completely new look at security in Europe. Didn't happen, didn't happen for all sorts of reasons. But now we're looking at one very large, very powerful alliance, which Russia has always seen as a tool of the United States. NATO can say it's defensive but absolutely as often and as loudly as it likes. Russia doesn't accept that. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Mary Dejewski. Mary is a writer and broadcaster with decades of experience. She's a foreign affairs columnist for The Independent and a frequent contributor to Spiked. She's previously been a foreign correspondent in Moscow, Paris and Washington, and a special correspondent in China. She's often covered history in the making. She was in Moscow during the collapse of communism. Her five years reporting from Washington led right up to the tense, tired election of 2000 and the eventual victory of George W. Bush. And she was diplomatic correspondent for The Independent before and during the war in Iraq. Mary, so we are over a month now into this war. And according to the coverage, it's hard to tell in the fog of war, of course, but things do seem to be going quite badly for Russia. We know that generals have been killed. Uh, There's talk of Russia stalling, not getting, getting quite as far as it thought it would by this stage. Lots of Russian troops have been killed, of course. And certainly if someone had told me four weeks ago that Russia would still be at this rather bogged down stage at this uh, at this moment in the conflict, I would have found it hard to believe them. So what's your reading on where things currently stand for Russia in relation to this conflict? Well, there's so many different strands of this. Um, one of them is, I mean, I think the general perceptions, which have been hugely encouraged by, um, it would appear, sort of official um, intelligence and other sources on our side, is that indeed the Russians are doing very, very badly. But I think we need to pause a little and first consider how badly the Russians are doing depends a little bit on what their original objectives were. And we don't know what their plan was at the outset. Um, We've been told that they expected basically to march in on day one, and by day five, they would have captured Kiev, the government would have rolled over, and a pro-Russian government would be in charge, and that would be that. Now, maybe there was such a plan, but we have no evidence that there was such a plan. Um, And the way that the Russians have, as it were, lined up, they've got a three-pronged invasion. They've got the invasion from the north um, through Kharkiv and towards Kiev. They've got the invasion from the east through the through the separatist areas, and they've got the invasion from the south from the Black Sea. And I think each of those has been going in a different way. And mm. it's wrong, really, to to talk about Russia's difficulties without talking also about the relative success, especially at the outset, um, of the invasion from the south. And Russia made quite a lot of progress there. And it's 
got stuck in two places. It's got stuck in Mariupol, which is being, which is a crucial port and absolutely vital to all sorts of aspects of Russia's ambitions. Um, and it appears to have got stuck on the way to Odessa at somewhere called Mykolaiv. This is something relatively new that they seem to have stalled there because mm. in the first two weeks they were making quite a lot of progress in the south, which they weren't making in the north. And I think you know we need to look at that. We've also discounted pretty much what's been going on in the east, which has been relatively easy for Russia because that's where really the bulk of its support is. But we're getting very conflicting reports from there. Some people say that the reception hasn't actually been as um, as ecstatic as Russia hoped for. Other people say, well, actually, Russia just sort of walked through it and it's not it's, it's not territory that's currently at issue. So I think there's a lot we don't know. That's a very useful overview. And it uh, leads me on to my next question, really, which is, as you say, we don't really know what the plan was, what Russia's war plan was, what its ultimate aims are. But I want to ask you a little bit about why why it invaded, even if we don't know where it's going to go, how it wants things to end. Just looking a little bit at why and and the run-up to this conflict. So, of course, anyone right now who mentions NATO expansion or any problems caused by the West over the past 10 to 20 years runs the risk of being called a Putin apologist. We're all very aware of that. Um, But I want to ask you about this because this is something you've written about very well and very extensively in recent years, including on Spiked which is just the sometimes rather reckless role played by NATO's eastward expansion in relation to Russia and Russian security concerns. And I want to ask you, how important do you think that still is in this discussion? Even as we recognise that this war is Russia's responsibility, it was Russia's conscious decision to go into Ukraine, how important do you think those earlier actions were in creating these kind of regional tensions around Ukraine and Russia? Well, I mean, I was as absolutely flabbergasted as anybody by the fact that Russia decided to invade rather than simply trying to consolidate its position in eastern Ukraine. Mm. That would have seemed so much simpler that an all-out invasion that Russia launched, I mean, that just seemed completely extraordinary. In the context of NATO expansion and all the things that have been going on, I mean, my view has always been that NATO expansion has been absolutely crucial in all this. Now, um, we should probably stop here. And I recognise that the term NATO expansion is rejected by people who say, well, it you know, the vast majority of people on the Western side say it wasn't expansion of NATO. It was sovereign countries deciding to join an alliance whose protection was very much in their interests. And you look at it now with the benefit of hindsight and you say, well, on the one hand, countries like Poland and the Baltic states, weren't they right to seek the protection of NATO? That's one way of looking at it. It's not my way of looking at it because I think that is a sort of after-the-fact justification. The way I would look at it is that the way the door was opened to East and Central European countries 
joining NATO, which had the effect of bringing the borders of the Western Alliance practically up to Russia's borders, whereas before it had had a a buffer zone of a sort of way, which made it feel that bit more secure. The advance of NATO, as Russia saw it, was to my mind, a huge element in Russia's thinking and its perceptions over the last 10, 15 years. And it's very easy for for the Western side says, well, it was the decision of sovereign nations to join NATO. It wasn't, as it were, the alliance that expanded. They also say that why on earth would Russia be afraid of even the advance of a purely defensive alliance. And I think both of those things are, they don't understand how Russia sees it, because Russia does not see NATO as a defensive alliance. Russia looks at, say, the involvement of NATO in Afghanistan, where the mission in Afghanistan was described as NATO-led rather than a NATO um, operation per se. They talk about Iraq, which of course wasn't itself a NATO operation to begin with, but it had elements of NATO. They look at Libya and it doesn't really matter whether technically those were um, NATO pioneered missions, which by and large they weren't. It's the perception from Russia that these were interventions, largely it has to be said unsuccessful interventions, made by the West in the interests of the West. And that's how Russia sees it. And Russia looks out to to its Western borders and it feels threatened by the NATO alliance. It doesn't matter. NATO can say it's defensive absolutely as often and as loudly as it likes. Russia doesn't accept that. And it also often said on the NATO side, well, why would Russia be this enormous power with so many people so well armed when it looks out at NATO? Why is it so apprehensive? And, you know, you have to look at the last 30 years when Russia has seen itself essentially as a defeated and much diminished power after the end of the Soviet Union. And it looks at its military might compared with NATO's military might. And it feels apprehensive because its military strength is vastly less, as it would see it, than NATO's. One of the things uh, I've noticed uh in this element of the discussion in particular, is how difficult it is to have this kind of discussion and and to openly question the role that NATO has played and the provocations that NATO has made, even as one makes clear that one is entirely opposed to Russia's invasion, which I am, which I think Russia is entirely responsible for. It's not a child. It, It makes decisions. It makes conscious political decisions. But even given those those opinions on the Russian invasion, people will still say, how can you talk about NATO? Why are you bringing this up? This is the wrong thing to do. And it's become a very stultifying political climate and almost an illiberal one in relation to what we're allowed to talk about in relation to Russia, Ukraine, which is very surprising because even, you know, great Cold War thinkers like George Kennan, for example, even Margaret Thatcher, these people were 
also quite critical to the ever eastward expansion of NATO. They thought it was a mistake. They thought it would have fairly dire, pretty predictable consequences. So why now at this moment do you think it's becoming difficult to criticise NATO uh, and to have a, a genuine reckoning with what might have brought about the tensions we're currently seeing? Well, I think it's 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 largely um, with the benefit of hindsight because, as I mentioned before, the Baltic states, Poland, um, Czech Republic, um, East and Central European countries that joined NATO after the collapse of the Soviet uh, uh, of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire, that it's it's so much easier to say that um, those countries um, were justified in wanting to join NATO because they saw the threat from the east accurately, whereas um, maybe the French and the Germans, who were less hawkish in that wanted to deal with Russia more, that they were wrong. And it was the East and Central Europeans who, partly by virtue of history, partly by virtue of proximity, that they were right in seeing Russia as an aggressive power. And that's a much, that's a much easier view to take now. Mm than it has been in the past. And to, to say, you know, as, uh, as I've said, well, Russia has its own security concerns and it sees itself as by far the weaker party. And, of course, th- that's doubly difficult to say now yeah. in the context of what I agree with you is a completely unprovoked unprov- act of aggression by Russia against Ukraine. But you pointed out the various um, states people and um, a lot of academics and um, and practitioners who say that the expansion of NATO, call it the expansion of NATO for shorthand's sake, um, that this was a huge mistake at the end of the Cold War. And, you know, I, I agree with that. The world, that at least Europe, would have been completely different if at the same time as the Warsaw Pact had been disbanded, NATO said, well, right now is the time for a completely new look at security in Europe. Didn't happen, didn't happen for all sorts of reasons. But now we're looking at one very large, very powerful um, alliance, which Russia has always seen as a tool of the United States. And I think one of the things that lies behind the events of the last month, six weeks, has been Russia's perception that it couldn't talk to either NATO as an alliance or to the United States, the European Union, it didn't really, it doesn't really reckon as a player in the security context. But Russia put out um, a lot of feelers through October, November, December. December, it actually tabled um, some proposals for talks on security in Europe. And they were picked up in a rather um, half-hearted way by the United States. They were rejected completely out of hand by, by, by NATO. And I think Russia felt that there was that, that there was really no future in that approach. It, it, it had tried proposing talks, and it was interesting that at the same time, Putin said something that I had. I, I may be wrong, and I'm. I may just not know this, but he said something I hadn't heard him say before, which was that the um, that Ukraine joining NATO, or as he put it rather neatly, 
NATO in Ukraine mm. rather than Ukraine in NATO, by which he meant um, the, the, the training and the arming of Ukraine that's been going on now for the best part of seven years. Putin said that Ukraine in NATO or NATO in Ukraine was a red line for Russia. And, you know, partly because maybe the last memory of red lines was um, was Obama's red line about chemical weapons in Syria. Um, maybe just because that, that expression has become so commonplace, I think it wasn't really noted with maybe the seriousness that it should have been noted at the time. So speaking of uh, Putin, I wanted to ask you about his broader motivations. So we know that Putin and and the Russian elite more broadly were agitated by the expansion of NATO and considered it to be a threat to their integrity and to their borders and to the the satellite states around them as well. Uh, But what about Putin's broader concerns? Because we read so much stuff about Putin and it's very difficult to know what's true and what isn't. And I think one of the trends in the West at the moment, the Western coverage is to psychologize Putin. So he's a madman, he might be ill, he's isolated, he doesn't really know what he's doing, he's a bit crazy. There's that kind of discussion. And then there's also the idea that he really wants to restore the Russian Empire, to restore imperial prestige that Russia enjoyed a long time ago. How do you see it? Why do you think those kinds of ideas have become the focus of the discussion about Putin? And how do you see his real motivations? I think it's entirely predictable and entirely natural after the invasion of Ukraine to say um, Putin's mad, he's irrational, um, and to an extent that fits in with a lot of the sort of descriptions of Putin over the last, especially over the last 10 years, where he's really been demonised in the West as this, um, this gigantic hate figure. And it's much easier to dismiss him in that way than it is to try and figure out what his motivations are and how he might look at the world. And of course, with the invasion of Ukraine, it was so much easier to say, you know, this guy is completely completely reckless. Uh, He's dismissed all the rational arguments against invading Ukraine, which were there were dozens of arguments why this this was always going to be a risky venture for Russia. And, you know, those of us who said it wasn't going to happen, um, it was on the basis that it was too risky. There were too many things militating against it to think that Putin would actually would actually go ahead and do it. Now, um, I think there are two things which I sort of reject in Putin's thinking. Um, one of them is the idea that he wants to rebuild either the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. I don't think that's what it's about. Again, it's very easy to say his whole approach to the world is one of expansion and aggression. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think that Russia has had a very difficult time, as indeed um, the UK has and France has, um, in getting used to a world either without an empire or with a very contracted empire. And that's been as difficult for Russia as it has been for anybody else. And the timescale has been much shorter. But I don't think that Putin is about resurrecting. You know, I know the famous quote about Putin saying, you know, the the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the last century. (sighs) 
He has explained that as saying that he meant it in Russian domestic terms, that it caused, caused all sorts of um, poverty and domestic disruption. Um, and he says that he meant it in that light, not in terms of um, regretting that the, that the Soviet Union was in the past. I do think that he had an agenda of trying to make Russia respected again and a great power in the world. And I don't mean that in terms of territory um, or in terms of force of arms. I mean it in terms of being um, treated with respect as a fully paid up member of um, sort of global society, commensurate with Russia's size and its history. And I think when Putin came to power, he felt that wasn't recognised. And probably until four weeks ago, um, people in Russia would have felt he'd done a pretty good job of rebuilding Russia's place in the world. Um, there's, a, the, there's another motive which is often attributed to Putin, which is the idea is he sees a successful and prosperous democracy in the making just across Russia's borders. And he sees that as a threat to Russia because it illustrates that it would be possible in a post-Soviet country um, like Ukraine, a big post-Soviet country, to have an alternative and that that would be a threat to Putin and to Russia as, it current, as it's currently organised. I actually don't see that. After the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, 2004-2005, Ukraine had a very militantly pro-Western government and Russia didn't make any move then. And I don't think it's the sort of government that Ukraine has that Russia has a particular problem with. Um, it also needs to be noted that, I mean, in GDP terms, per capita GDP terms and in wealth terms, Ukraine is a poorer country than Russia is. And you know, that has to be understood. So I think, yes, Putin wanted to rebuild respect for Russia. But no, he didn't want to rebuild the empire. He didn't want to rebuild the Soviet Union. And he wasn't wary of, um, it might be seen as an alternative model on his doorstep. Okay. I want to ask you about how, how should someone indicate their support for Ukraine? I know that might sound like an odd question. So let me briefly explain. I'm one of those people who thinks uh, very much that uh, NATO has a lot of uh, questions to answer about what it's been doing in recent decades and the thoughtlessness of it and the geopolitical cluelessness of some of the decisions it has made. I think Russia's security concerns were entirely predictable. Whether one thinks they are justifiable or not, it was very clear that they would emerge. Um, but at the same time, Russia is, of course, responsible for invading Ukraine. It is doing unspeakable things against uh, a sovereign democratic nation, which is uh, obviously not tolerable. You wrote a very interesting piece in The Spectator where you talked about there potentially being a problem if Western media and Western the Western political class cheers on Ukraine's 
resistance, its 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 fight against Russia, without offering any kind of tangible support in a meaningful way, or, or certainly boots on the ground, uh, no fly zones, etc. And that got me thinking: How does one show solidarity to Ukraine without calling for that kind of Western militaristic intervention, which I do think could prove problematic and could have an escalating effect on the conflict? So, do we sit back? Do we just be observers? How do you see that working out? I think my difficulty with what was happening and what's still happening was, as you say, this sort of contradiction between um, cheering Ukraine on, but being, as it were, very adamant that NATO itself was not going to be involved or um, troops from NATO countries. And my argument wasn't that the West should be more involved inside Ukraine. It was that we really had to ask ourselves how responsible it was um, really to be to be cheering Ukraine on and encourage it and arming it really beyond what its capabilities would otherwise have been. And I think in some ways, the, 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 the longer this goes on, the more Western weapons are, are delivered into Ukraine. You know, you're looking in some ways, uh, you know, I tended to feel that the conflict in Syria was artificially extended because of the way that rebel groups who really had no hope of prevailing were given succor from outside um, supporters, um, including the United States. And I think there's there's a real risk, in a way, of encouraging Ukrainians to fight, boosting their weapons capability. And one day, they're going to have to recognise a reality. Now, you know, there have been various various people, and I sort of would would include myself here, that the terms that have been, as it were, on offer for a ceasefire to Ukraine from Russia and the ones that are in the hovering in the background of the talks that have been going on in different ways, that those terms, alas, are actually the very same terms that were being discussed before Russia invaded. If they'd been accepted then, you can argue that there would actually have been no invasion. And the central demand from Russia's side here was that Ukraine should give up its ambition to be a member of NATO. That was the central demand. There were sort of side demands about recognising the, the that Crimea was uh, was now Russian, maybe some deal on the status of the what are called the breakaway regions in the east. But when you look at those terms, that's what was being discussed before Russia invaded. And it was rejected less by Ukraine than by Western countries, including the United States and Britain, on behalf of Ukraine. Mm. So it was the US and Britain who were saying that the Minsk Accords, which could possibly have brought some sort of settlement to the east of Ukraine and had been negotiated by the French and the Germans, it was the British and the United States who were saying those were totally unacceptable, that, that Ukraine should not accept those terms because it, it, it diminished its sovereignty. On the question of neutrality, it's, I mean, I think it's often not realised that when Ukraine first became independent in 91, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
its first constitution had a clause that said that Ukraine was a neutral country. And that status and that intent remained until 2014, when um, that was when Crimea was snatched, that was when the President Yanukovych was was toppled in Kiev with what was called the Revolution of Dignity or the um, Euromaidan. And after that was when the West started making overtures and when Ukraine was sort of seduced by the idea of um, eventually joining NATO. And that's when the neutrality disappeared from the constitution and it was replaced um, quite recently by an intention one day to join NATO. But, you know, that, that's something relatively recent. And if Ukraine had, had continued with its pledge of neutrality, you know, we, we really shouldn't be where we are today. Okay, just one final question, if I may, Mary. Following on from that, I it's a very complex issue, so I know you won't be able to, to cover all of it. But if Ukraine were to make a deal with Russia of its own accord uh, that would reinstitutionalize neutrality and, and swear off any joining of NATO, I would be perfectly happy for them to do that. Ukraine is a sovereign nation. It should have the right to make these decisions without NATO breathing down its neck and without having a gun pointed to its head. But at the same time, is there not a possibility that the deal struck with Russia could end up representing an unacceptable imposition on Ukrainian sovereignty, as you've just indicated, in relation to, for example, potential partition, the seizing or the handing over of uh, Donbass regions to Russia, the Finlandization of Ukraine, which there was a very interesting piece in the New York Times saying even people in Finland wouldn't wish Finlandization on, on other countries. What if the Ukrainian people decide democratically and independently and ideally without the pressures of NATO and the United States that they don't want to be neutral, that they would rather side up to the European Union, perhaps, shouldn't they have the uh, sovereign right to make those kinds of decisions, regardless of how concerned it makes Russia? Well, on the one hand, they should. On, on the other, other hand, just looking geographically at where they are, mm. it's very hard to, to believe that without outside support from the West, they would actually be able to sustain that. And in a way, that's what this war is all about, that Russia has been prepared to fight to, at very minimum, to, to have a neutral country next door to it. And the West has only been prepared to fight at second hand um, by proxy. And in a way, that has served to call the West's bluff. And yes, we're supplying enormous quantities of weapons to Ukraine, which are described, generally they're described as defensive weapons. The Americans um, are slightly more vivid in talking about um, lethal aid. And yes, Ukraine should obviously be free to negotiate whatever terms it can negotiate. But I think in one way, NATO, without intending to, has done Ukraine one favour in that in providing support at arm's length, it's shown Ukraine that it is not prepared to fight for it. And one of the very interesting things, I think, in, in the first two weeks, really, was the sort of um, the evolution of President Zelensky's position 
because he started out, well, I mean, his position has been very interesting because he came to power and he was elected really on a peace ticket of negotiating peace in the East. And gradually it seemed he swung more around to the view of his um, predecessor with a lot of help from the, from the Americans and the British and NATO to say he should, that Ukraine should be, had, had the right to decide to join NATO if it thought that was in its interest. And he shifted in that way to saying that, indeed, Ukraine had an ambition to join NATO. Now, what happened in the first two weeks of the war was that Zelensky became hugely disillusioned with NATO. And, you know, we've all seen the broadcasts that he made to the British Parliament, to the US Congress, to the German Bundestag, to the EU Parliament. And practically on all of these, he expressed huge dissatisfaction with, um, you know, great thanks a lot for all the arms and the weapons and everything you're sending us. But what you've shown is that you're not going to let us join NATO and we're never going to enjoy the protection of Article 5 NATO. And it seemed to me that there you had a recognition on the part of Ukraine, which should provide a direct line to a peace settlement, because that had illustrated to Zelensky himself and to Ukraine that NATO was not going to fight for them. It wasn't going to provide them the protection of Article 5, and that neutrality in that case was really going to be its best option. At the moment, Zelensky is saying that any terms of a peace settlement will be put to a referendum in Ukraine. And of course, that injects enormous amount of uncertainty for the future. And you sort of think, well, maybe these things are actually better um, negotiated by the politicians in charge. But we'll have to see how that plays out in the next couple of weeks. Mary, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.